Hello and welcome to EN4 News. My name is Duncan Robertson and here are today's top stories. Riots continue to break out in Nigeria over reports of police brutality. They've been killing and extorting from us just for having an iPhone, just for having dreadlocks. They tag you a fraudster, they tag you a criminal. We speak to the owner of Cafe Grand in Brunsfield after the cafe was told to close down by the council. And unbelievably, I had the council come round and tell me to close because the council have now decided that I'm a restaurant and I'm not a cafe. And in sport, Neil Doncaster echoes the First Minister's warnings about spectating football safely. And now here's our news correspondent Veronica with the biggest headlines at home and away. Covid restrictions are being tightened across the UK. Wales has put a ban on travelling into the region from coronavirus hotspots, while some of the harsher restrictions are expanding to other major cities in England. Health Secretary Matt Hancock addressed the House of Commons earlier this afternoon. For all of the areas entering the high alert level, the change will come into effect one minute past midnight on Saturday morning. From Saturday, London is moving up to Tier 2, which bans household mixing indoors and advises against the use of public transport. London Mayor Sadiq Khan justified the tightening of restrictions. We'll soon reach an average of 100 cases per 100,000 people, with a significant number of boroughs already over that threshold. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon announced new regulations regarding face coverings in the workplace and travelling, particularly trips to Blackpool. The First Minister addressed the nation during a virtual session of the Scottish Parliament earlier today. Now dealing with a second wave and having to impose new restrictions, uh, we will not shy away as the Scottish Government from doing what we think is necessary to keep the people of Scotland as safe as possible. EU leaders are holding the first Brexit meeting since the beginning of the pandemic today. The outcome of the negotiations will determine if the UK will leave the EU without a deal in place. Downing Street insists the UK is prepared to walk away. However, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte remains optimistic. I assume and expect my friend Boris Johnson to uh, live up to the commitments of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, And I'm still cautiously optimistic that we can... uh, Get somewhere. In international news, France has declared a new stage of emergency as President Emmanuel Macron has announced a nighttime lockdown. The curfew prohibits people from going to restaurants or visiting friends between 9 pm and 6 am in the areas worst affected by coronavirus. Paris is one of nine cities facing the four week curfew, which starts on Saturday. Finally, the Thai government has today announced a ban on gatherings of more than five people in an attempt to subdue ongoing protests. Pro-democracy protesters in Thailand were held back by ranks of police yesterday for confronting members of the royal family. The student-led movement is calling for the resignation of Prime Minister Prayuth Chan Ocha as well as less power of the monarchy. Following the momentum of the end SARS protest gained online, demonstrators have taken to city streets all across Nigeria. The movement began to demand the disbandment of the special anti-robbery squad and continues still in a bid to achieve justice for victims and total police reform. Here's correspondent Sarah Elbashir with the story. Day 7, and the streets of Nigeria have never looked busier. Protests taking place to demand for the end of SARS have caused major cities in Nigeria to come together and fight for freedom. The special anti-robbery squad is alleged to have harassed and terrorised Nigerian citizens for years. 
People of Nigeria took to the streets with signs and passion for justice after a video surfaced on social media. The video showed the alleged killing of an innocent, incapacitated man at the hands of SARS officers abusing their power. Till today, there has been a social media wildfire trending across the world, where Nigerians want change to their home country. Emmanuel Apara, a student activist at the scene of the protests in Ibadan, Nigeria, tells us what the atmosphere is like at the protests. It is violence free and we have students came out in massive to just express their grievances about answers brutality that is ongoing in this country. If you see the way police are harassing Nigerians in this country, in fact, you yourself you'll be depressed. So I believe Nigeria as a country we are we are we are one. While authorities have agreed to dissolve SARS in the last few days, the citizens are still not trusting. Already, 10 protesters have died at the hands of government rebuttal. SARS and the general police force have had a long history of targeting and using excessive force on innocent bystanders. SARS has been accused of harassment, extortion and even murder, specifically towards students and LGBT youth. Nigerian writer and poet Chinonso tells us more about their unfair targeting. They've been killing and extorting from us just for having an iPhone, just for having dreadlocks, they tag you a fraudster, they tag you a criminal, and they kidnap you because they just pick you up and take you to the to a cell, to a confined space, and ask you to pay a huge sum of money. Sometimes they end up killing those people, and this has been heavy on our mind for years now. Inonso also speaks on their violent disbanding methods. In Abuja, in Obomosho, they've killed, they killed a 10-year-old boy because they were dispersing bullets. This is not fair. They killed a guy, Jimo, in um, Obomosho while he was peacefully protesting. In Abuja, they've been throwing tear gas at them, shooting at them, even to the point that they sent, they sent in thugs to fight them. While SARS have denied use of excessive force, head of the police, Mohamed Adamu, announced that SARS will be replaced by a new police unit, SWAT, and officers will have to report for psychological evaluation beginning now. President Mohamedou Bahara has promised police reform and investigations into the supposed murders. It's only the first step in our commitment to extensive police reform. However, protesters have assured that they will not give up until reform is made. Back at the scene of the protest, Emmanuel tells us what he wants for the future of Nigeria. I would be very glad if the government can just look into our consideration and put the necessary action into place. Um, this is our holy request. They have to end SARS, they have to end uh, SWAT and end the police brutality and give us a good governance. The worldwide attention gained by the dedication of the protesters gives hope for future communities coming together and demanding for a shared change. It's been a week now since the Scottish government forced bars and restaurants to close in the central belt. But there remains a lack of clarity about who can and can't be open. I'm joined now by Robbie Park, the owner of Cafe Grand in Brunsfield. Robbie, would you say the latest COVID regulations have been the most significant ones for your business? Definitely. Yeah, it's been like death by a thousand cuts. Um, with each restriction that's brought in, it's just a, a new way of sort of squeezing us. Um, I thought it was okay uh, after the most recent announcement. Um, so by six o'clock last Friday, um, hospitality was told to, to shut down unless you were a cafe. Uh, I thought, well, that'll be okay. Although I've got uh, alcohol license and we do trade in the evenings normally, um, I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to be all right with that. So we've 
shut at six o'clock every day since Friday, not sold any alcohol. And unbelievably, I had the council come round and tell me to close because the council have now decided that I'm a restaurant and I'm not a cafe. So to clarify, were you told to close simply because of your alcohol license or because you stay open later than most traditional cafes would? Yeah, that was the two reasons that I was given. Um, I have an evening menu and I have an alcohol license. So they've deemed me to be a restaurant. So you feel that there are maybe some inconsistencies with what counts as a restaurant and what counts as a cafe? You, you know what it's like in there when it's 10 o'clock in the morning, it's bacon rolls, coffees, cups of tea. Um, and then, okay, in the evening, it is a restaurant. Yes, it's glasses of wine and it's seafood and pork belly and blah, blah, blah. But we're closing at six o'clock. So we're not doing any of that. We're not selling any booze. I don't understand really why, you know, the, if, if you looked at my sales for today, it's all sandwiches, um, bacon rolls, breakfasts, coffees, teas. I would say that that's cafe trade, but yeah, they've decided that it's not. Uh, so as a business owner then, how do you plan on affording the next two weeks? Have the government offered you any support or...? Um, I'm not too sure. Um, now, because I've been instructed to close, I believe that I can apply for some sort of grant, but I think the 40 million fund that was announced by Sturgeon last week, um, that's for that's to cover all the hospitality businesses in the central belt. So I think that that boils down to about £2,000 per business across the central belt, um, which is just nuts. How, how they expect... You know, my, my, my bill from, from Campbell's, the butcher, each week is about a 1000 Um My rent each week is about a 1000 <laughs> And that's only two expenses. Um, okay, the, the furlough scheme's still there uh, for another two and a half weeks or something. Um, but thereafter, the new job support scheme, the JSS that's replacing furlough, that actually requires the employee to work a third of the scheduled hours. So if we're closed, how do they do that? And the alternative package, which the government cover the cost for, I think the employee only receives 67% of their income, which when you take, you know, a lot of the staff are on minimum wage, um, you take 67% of that, it's not a hell of a lot. And unfortunately, um, registrations, I think this is correct, registrations for furlough ended on the 10th of June. So any of the new staff that have hired, they're not covered by it. Robbie Park in Brunsfield there. Thank you for joining us, Robbie. A new poll by Ipsos Mori has shown a 58% majority in favour of an independent Scotland. With 2021's Holyrood elections on the horizon, I'm joined by our political correspondent, Lindsay, to get her thoughts. Lindsay, just how significant is this poll result? I would say this poll result is actually uh, very significant. It uh, shows a trend. There has been nine polls done since June that have showed a steady increase in support for an independent Scotland. Um, It is worth taking this poll with a pinch of salt, though. Uh, About 6% of those who took the poll are undecided on this matter, and around 30% of those who said they would vote for independence said they would need some kind of reassurance before voting yes in a referendum. Yeah, of course. Um, So what sort of reassurance do you think they would need going forward? Uh, Well, the main reasons that uh, these people were saying they would need reassurance would be for reasons like the economy, uh, currency was another big one, uh, um, as in what kind of money we would be using, um, 
Also, our status in the European Union was a large reason mm. a lot of people were uncertain. How are things looking as for the SNP as we move towards the general election next year? Uh, SNP are, by the same poll, expected to win by a huge majority. Uh, over half of um, poll participants um, said that they would vote for SNP in May in the Scottish elections. The poll also said that two-thirds of Scots would back another referendum if the SNP were to win the next election. Of course, Westminster have rejected the idea of a second independence referendum. Uh, but do you think there would be a clear mandate for another referendum if the SNP were to win this next election? I think if the SNP do win the next election by the majority that they're, they're expected to win by, I think it will be a lot harder for Westminster to say no to another referendum than they have done in the past. Uh, the previous um, historic uh, SNP majority was in 2011, and that, of course, paved the way for the 2014 referendum. So I would say um, it's very likely that Westminster will have to cave into that pressure and uh, give the Scottish people another referendum. Well, thank you very much for that, Lindsay. Thank you. While US elections on November 3rd will decide which candidate will lead the United States out of the pandemic, post-industrial societies still feel left behind. In areas such as these, the outcome of the election will prove to be crucial. Our reporter Brennan Duggan spoke to the mayor from one of those very cities. Manesson in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was at its peak in the 1940s as one of the many steel-producing hubs in the state. With a population of 20,000, many industrial workers believed they had a job for life. As the industrial age came and went, however, their population depleted to a mere 7,000 and faced a huge lack of industry. Like many post-industrial cities that make up what is known as the Rust Belt, Manesson is now full of vacant buildings, boarded up local businesses, and faces serious infrastructure issues. Manesson is looking for some kind of rekindling. Enter 2016, and a presidential candidate nobody predicted, who promised a return to the steel-producing glory days. And I know you've been through some very, very tough times, but we're going to make it better, and we're going to make it better fast, okay? Just watch. For years, they watched on the sidelines as our jobs vanished and our communities were plunged into depression-level unemployment. Many of these areas have still never recovered and never will unless I become president. They were these industrial giants and then they fell on hard times for various reasons. And I think that you're, have, you're seeing Trump play into that. He's saying, hey, you were forgotten and look what this mess got you into. People thought about it and said, yeah, um, he, he's going to help us because he's, he's here and he's listening. Matt Chirac was elected mayor of Manesson less than a year after Trump swayed the once Democratic stronghold. But in the three years since he took office, Chirac says he has yet to see the president fulfill any of his promises. He hasn't fulfilled his promises in Rust Belt communities like this, that's for sure. We haven't seen an increase in jobs. Um, we haven't seen an increase in infrastructure um, across the board, or in infrastructure funding, I should say. Um, and if, they, if, if the tax cut that he gave isn't reaching people, which it's not reaching low-income people, so together it's not helping anyone. It, it, it strung people along. I've tried to tell people, even if the mill opened up to the same level that it was in the 40s and 50s, they wouldn't employ that many people because everything's been automated. 
In March 2018, President Trump introduced tariffs on imported steel, and as a result, US production of steel rose, although only to a little below what it was in 2014. Then, in 2019, the price of steel crashed following a steady decline. But Mayor Shara says towns like Manesin need to move on from steel, an unpopular view among some. My take is I think that we should focus on technology now. When we were founded, we modeled what Pittsburgh was doing with the steel industry. And, you know, Pittsburgh has transitioned over to technology and medicine and that sort of thing. So I think it makes sense for us to do that now. But that's to be determined. But I think we're, we're finally moving towards the closure that we needed. And I think a lot of people agree that we need to reinvent ourselves. And just like in 2016, the Rust Belt economy is still being politicized by both parties, as heard at the vice president debates. Joe Biden looked at a supporter in the eye and pointed and said, I guarantee, I guarantee that we will abolish fossil fuels. Banning fracking, abolishing fossil fuel, crushing American energy, and economic surrender to China. Joe Biden will not ban fracking. Joe Biden has been very clear that he thinks about growing jobs, which is why he will not increase taxes for anyone who makes less than $400,000 a year. In 19 days, the town of Manesson will vote in hopes that whoever is in charge after November will bring some kind of change. Brennan Duggan, EN4 News, Pittsburgh. And now for a roundup of today's local stories, here's our Edinburgh correspondent, Kieran Webster. Thank you, Duncan. The Edinburgh-based star pubs and bars have been hit with a £2 million fine this morning after an investigation by the pub's quoted adjudicator found that the Heineken-owned company over the last three years has repeatedly breached their code. The report found tenants were forced to continue selling Heineken beer despite being untied from star pubs and bars, with some being told all of their keg beer sales had to be Heineken. Fiona Dickey, some of our services in Edinburgh were subject to delay and alteration yesterday. As a tied pub tenant, the pub's code gives you important rights and protections. It also ensures that you have all the information that you need about your pub and your rent. Police Scotland have today confirmed a person has died after being struck by a train at a gay market yesterday. Paramedics confirmed the death of the scene, but it's not being treated as suspicious and the body is still to be identified. Some of our services in Edinburgh were subject to delay and alteration yesterday. Uh, sadly, that was due to a person being struck by a train. Uh, anyone affected by the incident can contact the Samaritans. You can do that free of charge um, any time from any phone. Um, just dial 116123. Pub and brewery chain Marston's are to cut jobs due to the ongoing economic crisis caused by COVID-19. With more than 2,000 furloughed staff facing losing their jobs at the pub chain, 8 out of 21 Marston's pubs are currently closed throughout Scotland. The pub said since the first lockdown was listed, a 1,000 employees had returned to work, but new measures mean over 2,000 pub-based roles will be cut. UK Hospitality, the trade body, warned job cuts in the sector this year could exceed a previous estimation of around 5,500. There have been delays at Glasgow Airport today due to a service truck hitting a plane. Safety fears were raised following the collision off the runway. Scottish influencer Jamie Genevieve was among passengers on the British Airways flight to Heathrow. A spokesman for Glasgow Airport said a minor incident involving a BA aircraft was reported. The airport team attended, as is standard procedure, and following an investigation, it was stood down. This resulted in a delay to the 11.50am flight to Heathrow. 
A fundraiser to bring back the body of a 24-year-old Polish man who went missing in Edinburgh back home has raised over £4,000, double the amount they aimed for. Arcadius Blikus was described as a wonderful, warm and friendly person in the fundraiser's description, which was set up to help bring the body back to Poland. Arcadius was last seen on the 4th of October in Edinburgh and his body was found the following Thursday near Murrayfield. Police have said they have found no unusual circumstances surrounding his death. That's the local news. Back to you, Duncan. A 19-year-old from Glasgow made the headlines recently when she began a petition to ban unpaid trial shifts. Isla McGlade graduated earlier this year but has since struggled to find any work. She eventually had to accept an unpaid internship as the only way for her to get a foot in the door of her industry. After working for five hours without pay, she began her bid to ban unpaid trial shifts. Her campaign has sparked much debate about the issue. Ian 4 News spoke to the recent graphics design graduate about her experience. It's a interior design internship with a company called 2020 Interiors. The very first email they said, unfortunately, because of COVID, um, that they couldn't pay me. But they have been able to pay like interns in the past, but they can't because of COVID right now. And they've laid off a lot of staff. But what does the law say about this? Unfortunately for McGlade, unpaid trial shifts and internships are somewhat of a legal grey area. We spoke to Professor of Labour Law at Glasgow University, Ruth Dukes, to explain the situation further. Um, Most employment laws are the same across the country, almost all. But there is this exception in the relevant Act, that's the National Minimum Wage Act, which says that you don't have to be paid uh, the National Minimum Wage if the work that you're doing is in the course of seeking or obtaining work or if it's designed to provide training, work experience or temporary work. Despite these recent efforts to make unpaid trial shifts illegal, Professor Dukes does not believe it will become law anytime soon. In the current context of the coronavirus crisis and kind of, let's say, more urgent changes that are happening to employment law around that with furlough schemes and so on, it's not in all likelihood going to be at the top of anyone's policy agenda at the moment. When it comes to the petition to make unpaid trial shifts illegal, the Scottish government gave a statement to the BBC saying that, quote, it is already illegal to employ people on unpaid work trial periods for an excessive period of time, or where the trial is not part of a genuine recruitment process, end quote. With unemployment increasing due to the current pandemic, Professor Dukes thinks that this will ultimately weaken employment rights. Um, Not just a weakening of the laws, but again, a weakening of the ability of any worker to challenge any breach of the law. Because in a situation of mass unemployment, you become grateful for having just a wage coming in. Because of the pandemic and the challenging situations it has caused, McGlade has had to accept unpaid work, something that she doesn't think she would have had to do otherwise. Right now, with everything that's happened, the design industries... um, really struggling for jobs right now and the people that have been laid off already aren't going to the same positions that I am so it's getting less and less likely that I'm going to be getting a job so I'm not really in a position to argue. On to sports now. Here's our sports correspondent David with the latest headlines. The SPFL's Chief Executive Neil Doncaster has echoed the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's call for fans to respect coronavirus rules. Rangers and Celtic meet in the Scottish Premiership on Saturday, but pubs in Glasgow are closed, while household gatherings are limited to a maximum of six. Doncaster has reiterated that travelling outside of the central belt to go to a bar is a breach of the rules and urged supporters not to gather in large groups. And in boxing news, this weekend's planned all-female world title fight between Hannah Rankin and Savannah Marshall has been postponed after Marshall's trainer, Peter Fury, tested positive for COVID-19. 
In a statement on Twitter, Rankin said, So gutted my World Boxing Organization World Title Fight is off due to Peter Fury testing positive for COVID. I wish Peter well, plus hope he recovers soon. And finally, a petition to allow fans back into stadiums will be debated in Parliament, scheduled for the 9th of November, after almost 200,000 people have signed a petition. That's all for today's sports headlines, but to continue the theme of allowing fans back into football stadiums, our reporter Alex Grant has been looking into what the Highland League have been doing to allow fans to stay close to the action, but away from stadiums. This weekend was supposed to see the return of the Highland League, the UK's most northern senior football league. However, with coronavirus still affecting sports, across the country, that isn't possible. The Highland League Cup semi-finals, however, will be taking place and for the first time in the history of the division, they will be available via stream, allowing fans to follow their team from the safety and comfort of their own home. The Highland League have said that they won't start the season without fans, although for Martin United's club secretary Brian Braidwood is hopeful that won't be too far away. Uh, we should, this is now the middle of October, we should be probably about a third way through the season already but now kind of hopefully we're not going to be too much longer in getting back to but how can football grounds be deemed safe? Well, Neon County's director of football, Graham McLeod, thinks that having a small stadium could actually be an advantage. Our sort of crowds range between two to three hundred, so and our capacity is for two thousand eight hundred. So you know, you're talking about ten percent of of a full capacity inside the ground, which you know you can easily social distance, keep two meters apart, and then if you insist on everyone wearing a mask to the game. And, um, and hand sanitising as they come in. I, th- I certainly think it could be done safely to allow the, the spectators back into the ground. Nairn County's Director of Football, Graham McLeod, talking to Alex Grant. That's it for today's Sports Roundup. Back to you, Duncan. The arts industry has taken a huge hit during the coronavirus pandemic, and the struggle doesn't only exist on the stages of our local theatres. Many performers and arts industry workers have been left very much in the dark, with little confidence on when they can take to the stage again. In some cases, the effects of the pandemic go beyond our shores. Madison Watson and Millie Penny are professional cruise ship performers. They agreed to tell us how their livelihoods have been affected since the beginning of the pandemic, and what's changed seven months down the line. The arts industry has taken a huge hit during the coronavirus pandemic, and the struggle doesn't only exist on the stages of our local theatres. Many performers and arts industry workers have been left very much in the dark, with little confidence on when they can take to the stage again. In some cases, the effects of the pandemic go beyond our shores. Madison Watson and Millie Penny are professional cruise ship performers. They agreed to tell us how their livelihoods have been affected since the beginning of the pandemic, and what's changed seven months down the line. Madison, Millie, thank you very much for joining us. So, my first question is, what was it like for you when the news of coronavirus first hit the ship? So initially we were not overly concerned by the situation as Brazil's cases were so low and we were told that we wouldn't have to have photos and have a lot of contact with the guests and the passengers after the shows just to reduce the risk. And what protocols did the ship actually enforce to keep the workers and the passengers safe? There were body temperature scans put in place for when you were leaving the ship and getting back on the ship each day that we docked. Once all the passengers had been taken off the ship, as crew, we got our temperatures checked twice a day. Was there any particular point you remember thinking this was actually a more serious issue than it initially seemed? During the cruises, we had a home port, which was Argentina for us, which was every seven to ten days. And when we wanted to dock in Argentina, we were told the pilot would not be able to get on board. So from then, we realised it was a lot more serious than we had thought. And what was ship life like for you after the passengers had left? 
When we finally managed to dock in Argentina, we were all confined to our cabins and were only allowed to leave our cabins when it was mealtimes or when we had to leave to get our temperature checked. The days we were stuck on board after all the passengers had disembarked, we were actually lucky enough to move around the ship and leave our cabins due to having no cases or any high temperatures on board. So what has it been like for you since you got home then? During being home, it has been really hard as our industry has had like no support or help from the government to get us back or encourage us back working. But our company, Border Reductions, have been in contact with us since disembarking. We have been told in the last month that we could possibly be back in November. So have there been any work opportunities for you in the past few months? For dancers like ourselves who usually work on cruise ships, there's been absolutely no opportunities for us to do anything to do with the performing arts. Dance schools have been open, so there has been a chance for us to teach classes or for us to take part in classes, but that doesn't really compare to actually performing and dancing on stage. Yeah, of course. Um, And this this past week, Rishi Sunak uh, has infamously said that performing arts industry workers should retrain for new and different jobs. Um, How did that make you feel? We just find his comments so disrespectful and hurtful to all of us in the performing arts industry because we've trained so hard from such a young age and we're so proud of the jobs we do and we just want to have people recognise the fact that what we do is actually really hard work. The mental and the physical side of it is so hard and so challenging and I don't think that Rish's comment really took into perspective every aspect of our job and how hard it is to do all the dancing, the training, be away from family and friends just everything about it it was just made us all really angry but for sure we are not giving up on our career as dancers this is 100 percent what we want to do so we're not giving up and whenever our time may be that we can get back to it we will be going back of course well i hope you get back to work soon uh, madison and millie thank you so much for taking the time to join us today I also had the chance to catch up with ivan a cruise ship entertainer who's currently isolating on board a ship Ivan, thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Can you tell us a little bit about what life is like on the ship at the moment? For example, what are the procedures like? Do you have to wear masks on board? Uh, Yes, we do wear masks in public areas wherever uh, more than than a few people congregate. Other than that, uh, there are some rules, like uh, using elevators, no more than four persons in the elevator at the time. And uh, what is interesting, today I had my first training, just a regular training, catching up on environmental issues and stuff. So yes, usually, uh, even before the, this pandemic, uh, usually the ship, ships, cruise ships have uh, troubles with the uh, so-called Naora virus. And it's something that entire cruise industry is struggling with. So ships do have a very long practice of fighting viruses. As government restrictions make indoor gaming difficult, interactive gaming has offered a solution for the industry. The lack of restraints on interactive gaming have allowed it to thrive in a pandemic which has destroyed countless businesses. Here's our correspondent Amy Hollingsworth with the story. As 2020 comes to an end, most of us have spent more time indoors than ever before. Suffering industries have adapted by coming up with new and creative ways to fill our spare time, especially in interactive gaming. This may not come as a surprise, as the gaming industry has amassed nearly £160 billion worldwide when 2020 is over. New ways to get people engaged in the age of social distancing means there have been a wave of innovation for gaming. For example, have you ever thought about expanding escape room into the great outdoors? Companies like The Big Escape are doing exactly this. 
founder of The Big Escape, Mark French, explains to us how this new wave of gaming came to fruition. With an escape room, you're obviously limited to the amount of people. How about we do something where we mix kind of the concept of a treasure hunt and an escape room? We can get lots more people playing. The Big Escape's appeal is that it combines both an escape room and a treasure hunt into one experience. I think people have been amazed at the quality of it. You know, they don't know what to expect and they see then the quality of the videos, the quality of the, of the puzzles and stuff and the storyline. For The Big Escape and many other gaming companies, it was now a matter of working out how they could abide by the rules and still be just as unique. The latest COVID guidance in Scotland means that lots of work can go to waste. A lot of work in putting the storyline together. We filmed all the characters and that. But in terms of regulations, because it was an outdoor game and it was only two to six people in a team, we, we were okay in the regulations, but hugely affected the business. COVID regulations meant The Big Escape was unable to market the new business as they had hoped. We would have been going after obviously the general public, student groups. So all those sort of activities have stopped. It was just really small groups of families and friends playing it. The Big Escape recently introduced live events across all its locations. The feature allowed multiple groups to play the game at once, adding a competitive edge. As things stand, The Big Escape is safe from financial concerns. However, in these uncertain times, there is a risk that stricter rules could be imposed. In full lockdown, the game would join many other companies in being vulnerable to closure. And that's all from us here at EN4 News today. For more content, be sure to head to en4news.com. But until next time, stay safe and have a good day.